Good morning. We have the opportunity this morning to continue our study in the book of 1 Peter, working our way through Peter's first letter with an eye towards his life experience and how that may connect and influence what he says to his audience. Uh, Last week I told you that I did something a little bit different and I decided to preach directly from my notes. Then I took a look at the length of the audio file from last week and decided that we will not be doing that again, especially in light of the fact that there's a a lunch going on and uh, nobody, nobody wants to be held back. You will not be shortchanged in the teaching of God's word, um, but what uh, what is important will remain. Uh, Would you please stand to honor the word of God as we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which will be our text for this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May we be changed by it today. Amen. This passage has three distinct sections, which will be what we take a look at and focus on this morning. We begin this passage with a bonus command. If you were with us last week, the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1 contained four commands, three of which culminated into the fourth, which was a beautiful reminder to love one another earnestly. Peter begins this chapter with a bonus command. And that will be where we start. He then moves into a fulfillment lesson about identity. has to do with identity. That takes up a good chunk of the section. 
And then finally, he finishes with a concluding exhortation. So that's kind of our rough outline this morning. We start with a command. In the middle, there is a fulfillment lesson about identity. And then finally, we conclude with an exhortation from Peter. Let's begin by looking at the bonus command. And I say bonus because this is coming out of the four commands that we looked at last week from the first chapter. So in this command to open the section in 1 Peter 2, this this is found, sorry, in verses 1 through 3. There is context to this command, and it's found in verse 1. I'm going to share with you what is I consider to be a better translation than what we get in the ESV that was read for you a minute ago. The ESV puts it this way, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It makes it sound as though the command might be that very first phrase. Uh, That is in fact not the command. It is in fact setting the context for the command. The better translation for that first phrase would be the idea of having laid aside. Having laid aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. This is not the command, but it is in fact a description, and it sets for us the context of the command. The the context says that having laid aside, this is a realization, sorry, this is a realization of the culmination of, of the command from chapter 1, the, final, the culminating command from chapter 1. That command, like I mentioned a second ago, was the idea of loving one another earnestly. Peter assumes here or that his audience has realized that command. Now, he's not saying, okay, well, you know, in the span of from the time I wrote chapter 1 till the time that I'm writing chapter 2, you have magnificently realized your calling to love one another earnestly. No, he's progressing his argument. He's progressing his lesson. And in doing so, he's saying, I laid out for you the command, which culminated the commands, which culminated in love one another earnestly. And in doing so, what you will have done is you will have laid aside the following. Number one, you will have laid aside all malice. The idea there is simple. The idea is evil or wickedness. The use of the word all means every kind of all kinds of, every kind of malice and wickedness, every kind of evil and wickedness. But that's not all that's been set aside. Also, all deceit. Again, all meaning of every kind. And the idea of deceit here is the idea of craftiness, baiting people. Okay, it's ugly. But it's the thing we see happening, especially in our culture today, where we've lost the ability to be reasonable with one another. So we've laid aside all malice, every kind of malice, all deceit, every kind of deceit, and hypocrisy. This is the idea of play acting, acting under a mask, not being our true self, attempting to manipulate. We've also laid aside envy. This is an interesting one because it's really literally talking about the desire that we have in us that sours or rots because of sin. And what it does is it leads to ill will so that we find displeasure when other people experience good. When we have souring desires that leads to ill will where we find joy in other people's misfortune. And finally, the last thing that we are being called to lay aside in the command to love one another earnestly is all slander. 
By using all, again, it's meaning every kind of, and slander here is simply the idea of evil speaking. So every kind of evil speaking. Uh, Peter does a very thorough job of describing what it would look like to realize and put into practice the command to love one another earnestly. You will lay aside all evil and wickedness, every kind of it in the way that you treat one another. You will lay aside every kind of craftiness and baiting the way that you deceive other people. You will lay aside hypocrisy. You will lay aside envy and all manner of evil speaking. Having assumed that, obedience to the big picture of love one another earnestly, Peter comes in to lay out the actual command itself found in verse 2. The command is this, long for pure spiritual milk. Now the idea for longing here is the idea of craving. And it carries with it intrinsically the way of craving, the craving in a way that a newborn baby would crave milk. And he uses the imagery of a newborn baby, so he double amplifies that concept. The idea for a newborn baby craving, spirit, craving milk is must have. Any of you that have had a newborn baby in the house, you know that's a must have. So long for, crave with the intensity of a newborn baby, pure, pure spiritual milk. Pure meaning that it is without deceit. It is, in fact, what it claims to be. And that is the simplicity of it. Now, when we say spiritual milk, it's obvious that we're not talking about physical milk. There's no apostle of milk, you know, uh, milkman. Sorry, that, this is what happens when you go off script. Sorry. Okay. It's obvious that the spiritual, the milk that's being referred to here is, in fact, a spiritual milk. And it's interesting because the word that's used that's translated spiritual is also used to be translated reasonable. Um, the idea of your reasonable act of worship, that same concept, that same Greek word is used there. I think that may be one of the only other places it's found in Scripture. The root word, this word comes from logos, which we talked a little bit about last week. It's the idea of the identifying message that which is proclaimed from God. And it has its roots and is often used to describe Christ himself. So this idea of spiritual um, has the idea of a message that is linked back to the identity of Christ itself. And finally, the idea of milk. Now, the word here for milk is literally milk, okay? Uh, but it's used, obviously, metaphorically here. And the concept that's coming out in the use of milk and why use the word milk for saying that's what, that's what you should crave? The concept is that milk for a newborn is essential for growth. Okay, And so what Peter is saying is you must crave earnestly with the intensity of a newborn baby that which would cause you to grow. So what is the milk? What's this metaphorical milk? Well, in simplicity, it's, it's quite easy. It is the message of Christ. That which will cause you to grow. Now there's a purpose for this command. And that's found in verses 2 and 3. The idea is to grow or mature in salvation. But there is a caveat here. It is for those who have tasted. Good use of the word tasted here. Because he's consistent with the consumption of milk analogy. For those who have tasted for those that have experienced the goodness, the kindness of God in Christ. 
So for those, again addressed to the elect sojourners, who have experienced the goodness, the kindness of God in Christ, the command for you is to long for pure spiritual milk so that through it you may mature, you may grow in salvation. Now, let's stop and clarify. There's three places, three times in the New Testament scripture where the picture of spiritual milk is used. This is one of them. The other two are found in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews chapter 5. And in the 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 passages, uh, the audience is being scolded for only consuming milk, spiritual milk, as it were. And it's an indication in those sections, in those passages, of a lack of maturity that should not exist for those people, for those believers at that time. What I want to make clear to you here is to not fall into the trap of hearing the concept of spiritual milk and going in your mind with what you've heard before in Scripture. Peter is not teaching in this passage that it is okay to remain immature in your spiritual growth, in your understanding and growth of salvation, as it relates to salvation. That is not the context of what Peter is laying out here. What Peter is commanding in this passage is that the elect sojourners are to long for the pure message of Christ. And as a result, they will, in fact, grow and mature. Okay? That is the bonus command. On to part two, which is the lesson about identity found in verses four through ten. I'm going to pause here and read it again because it's been a minute since we heard the passage. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's not the fullness of of the lesson, but I'm going to stop there. First thing we need to note about this lesson about identity is that it starts with Christ, where every spiritual lesson should start, I might add. In verse 4, we're introduced to Christ who is the living stone. Now, the word for living here is the idea of Life as connection, connection to the source, connection to the power supply of where life itself is. So Christ is both living stone and we know by extension the source himself, the source of life. So as a living stone, he is both alive and acts as source of life for others, which is going to come into play beautifully. We also learn that Christ has been rejected by men. This idea of rejection is not a blind rejection. It's not a rejection that's like, well, that's not me. I don't believe this, and therefore I wholeheartedly reject it top to bottom. 
This rejection actually has a little bit more to it. It's a rejection that takes place after testing has happened. And that's an interesting one because what's being said here is that those who rejected Christ as cornerstone tested him first. And if you think about it and you go back to the time period in the Gospels where we read about the interaction between those who should embrace Christ and recognize him as chief cornerstone upon which all of the teaching of God would be built, they did in fact test him. But they tested him through the lens of their own ambition. And they tested him through the lens of their own selfishness. And in so doing, they said, no, we reject. The error was not in Christ. The error was in their testing. Also, we learn that he is, in fact, chosen by God. And it is, in fact, the word elect here that is used. Beautiful thing to note We are in Christ. We have been chosen, elect, has been made clear so far through this section, through this this book. But Christ also, in a sense, has been elect, chosen, set apart for a purpose as well. And finally, the first section teaching us about Christ in verse 4, we learn that he is in fact described as precious, Now, this is interesting because the word precious has come up three different times to this point, twice in chapter one and here in chapter two. In our English translation, the word is translated precious in all three places. And you would be tempted to think that the same idea is being communicated, but we're now at three for three different ideas. Precious, as it was laid out in chapter one, was introduced from the concept of having great value, being expensive. It also was used to describe the idea of having great value in terms of highness, which can coincide with having great dollar value, but doesn't necessarily. This description of precious in relation to Christ is the idea of honor, being honored. And it is a significant idea because it's going to run through to the end of this section. So to summarize, the lesson about identity begins with Christ. And we learn that he is, in fact, the living stone rejected by men, chosen by God and precious, honored. Peter then turns his attention to the elect sojourners in verse five. And what we learn about the elect sojourners and by extension us, as we have laid out, is that they and we are living stones. He is the living stone, and us being in relationship and connection with him, that life passes to us. And we are also, in fact, living stones. And we are being built up as living stones. We are being constructed into a spiritual house. Now, I don't, rem- I, I don't know if you can remember back several months to the last time I preached, But at some point, we talked about the fact that God made a promise to David, and David said, I want to make you a house, God, where you can be worshipped. And God turned it on David, and he said, no, I'm going to make you a house. And what we noted in that delivery, in that um, statement made by God, is that he uses the language very ambiguously, and he uses it intentionally. Because the idea of making David into a house 
included both a physical dwelling, a physical place of dwelling, and also the building up of those who would be within that dwelling. Kind of like the idea of a home, a, a physical house, and the family to dwell in it. Well, that's exactly what we get with the word here as well. The elect sojourners are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house. And the description in the Greek carries over from the idea in the Hebrew, which means that it can be both the dwelling itself, but also the inhabitants, also those who will live there. And finally, what we learn about the elect sojourners in verse 5 is that they are a holy, set-apart priesthood. And they have a purpose, and that is to offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that means exactly, because we're going to catch it a little bit later in the passage. So you have to stay tuned for that one. So this lesson about identity begins with Christ, then describes the elect sojourners, and then jumps into Scripture, verses 6 through 8. Three different passages of Scripture... Three different passages of Scripture here are going to be used by Peter... And he's going to use the fulfillment concept that we've become familiar with in much of the New Testament writing. He pulls first from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. The context is great. I'm not going to read the full verses before and after. You're welcome to do so if you would like. Um, I will set the context for you by simply saying this. That in Isaiah chapter 28, the discussion is going on about proclaiming judgment on the houses of Israel. They are not walking in obedience. They have turned from the truth, turned from the law. And God is declaring the action that he will take in judgment upon his own people for their disobedience. And in the context, he says this in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. That's how it is rendered in the ESV. Now let's contrast that with how Peter quotes it in verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's pretty clear the idea that Peter is making here. He is taking this concept of the chosen and precious cornerstone and applying it very distinctly and very clearly on Christ. And then he pulls from Psalm 118. I'm going to read for you from Psalm 118, verses 20 through 23. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The psalmist in this section is pointing out the beauty of being able to worship the Lord. It's a very different context than you get in Isaiah. Isaiah is very focused on judgment In Psalm 118, the psalmist is focused on praise and glory and thanksgiving for the opportunity to worship. And he says the way in which God has opened worship is a beautiful thing because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's pretty clear that what Peter is attempting to do 
by pulling this concept from Psalm 118 is to make it abundantly clear to his audience and to us that in fact the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone, is Christ. And in Christ, there is righteousness. And in Christ, there is salvation. And in Christ, there is the opportunity to worship the Lord truly and freely. Thirdly, Peter grabs from back from Isaiah, this time in chapter 8. And to set the context, I'm going to read for you verses 13 through 15. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The imagery here, again, like the first passage from Isaiah, is imagery of judgment on the houses of Israel. And in this section, Peter lifts the very short phrase, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And he uses that again in his portrayal and clear description of this is Christ. So altogether, who is Christ? According to the fulfillment of scripture that Peter lays out. He is the tested stone, the foundation stone being built in Zion, precious of a sure foundation. He was rejected by the builders. Those that should have seen who he was rejected him. But instead, God made him to be the cornerstone. And as the rejected stone, he will act as a stone of offense and a stone of stumbling. And there are many who will stumble over them, over him, because that is their destiny. God has set it. Now, there are a lot of details to get bogged down in here, especially in the next two verses. And I don't want to get bogged down in them. So what I'm going to do is read for you from second half of verse 8 through verse 10. And then we'll talk about the conclusion points from this lesson about identity. Peter writes, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, big contrast, you are not those who stumble, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here are the conclusion points of Peter's lesson Peter's lesson in identity. Number one, there's seven of them, by the way, so get your writing hand ready. Number one, Jesus is the rejected stone who has become the chosen cornerstone. Number two, Jesus is righteousness and salvation. Number three, through faith, the elect sojourners will partake in the honor of Christ. Number four, those who reject the stone 
and refuse to be persuaded by the word will stumble as was set by God. Number five, the elect sojourners are a holy tribe joined by common customs. That's what those ideas there literally mean in the description. Number six, the elect sojourners are priests of royal bloodline for the purpose of, remember I said before that there was a purpose to this priesthood, for the purpose of public celebration of the goodness of Christ. We don't need to cut animals into pieces and capture the blood and to sprinkle it on a large altar and to make a big stench and a big scene when it comes to the priesthood. The priesthood of the elect sojourners are called in their public service to engage in public celebration of the goodness of Christ, not public slaughtering of animals. That payment has been paid in full once and for all. And finally, number seven, the elect sojourners have been moved from darkness to light. And when it talks about light here, it's emphasizing the fact that it's the source itself. Christ is the source itself. And by being moved from darkness to light, connected to the source, these elect sojourners, and by extension us, we belong to God. Now, I don't know about you, but if you want to teach me a lesson about my identity in Christ, I like that one. That's got some great beauty to it. Our last section for this passage is the exhortation in the last two verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The exhortation is simple. It is to abstain, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and there was a pretty popular movement during that time period called the abstinence movement. And it taught, basically, that there was one thing that you should not do. And that was kind of the emphasis point. Unfortunately, that falls drastically short of what's being communicated in this Greek word picture. It does. And I think maybe many people were failed along those lines back in the day. To abstain, according to the Greek word picture, is literally this. To have one thing by letting go of something else. To have one thing by letting go of something else. We are wrong to only teach half of that. We are wrong to only teach that abstinence means let go of and do not do this. When in reality, abstinence is you get this. You are blessed by this because you have chosen to let go of that. So let me ask you, what is it that you have? What do we have? Well, we have new life. We have faith unfailing. And we have inheritance unfading. 
And what is it that we're called to let go of? Well, according to this exhortation, we're called to let go of the inordinate desires of the old self. You have new life. Let go of that which describes and characterizes the old self. That which is fading and withering and will ultimately be nothing like we learned and saw last week. Now why? Okay, you're calling me to embrace this and let go of this. Why? Why? What's the end goal? Well, I can clearly tell you and want to impress upon you that the end goal of abstaining from the passions of the flesh is not, hear me, not to prove your faith. It's not to earn the honor of Christ. That cannot happen by those means. They have already happened. Your faith has been tested and proved genuine, and the honor of Christ is yours already as you are in him. The end goal of this exhortation to abstain from the passions of the flesh, according to Peter, is to cause those who slander you to ultimately ascribe glory to God as eyewitnesses to his honor in your life. To cause other people who are not yet living in a way to ascribe glory to God and in fact actively opposing that as they stand as witnesses against you and slander you to cause those people to in fact become eyewitnesses of the honor of Christ in your life and to therefore raise glory to God. That is the end goal of this exhortation to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Ultimately, live differently so that Christ can be recognized and glorified. If we use the language from last week, be holy and love one another earnestly, even those that aren't here yet. And that should be the perspective. So now back to the beginning. Peter told Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here is Simon, who, as we know at the time, is being built up as a living stone upon the foundation of the living stone. And Jesus renames him Peter, Petros, which means rock. This new name reflects his identity as a partaker in Christ, who is the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, but also the chosen and precious cornerstone. He who prevailed over the gates of hell. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, all glory is yours. We are reminded today that Christ is chosen and precious in your sight. You have caused him to be the foundation upon which the church is built. You have set in place those that would stumble. And you chose for yourself a people to belong to you and to receive your mercy. Thank you for relentless grace and compassion. Thank you for pure spiritual milk and growth in salvation. Cause us to daily let go of the desires of our flesh, 
to embrace new faith, new life, earnest love. Through Christ we ask.